Welcome to RAQD Clinics. Hi, I'm Jack Cush with Room Now. Our case today, a woman with pulmonary embolism or venous thromboembolic events. A 54-year-old gal with seropositive RA presents with shortness of breath and chest pain for two days. She has a history of seropositive RA with a CCP that's very, very high. She's currently taking methotrexate 20 milligrams once a week, tofacidin of 11 milligrams once a day, prednisone 10 milligrams a day, aspirin once a day, and an allupent inhaler. She comes into the hospital because of the, chest, uh, the shortness of breath. Um, she has a workup and is found to have a pulmonary embolism. Uh, she has a past history of RA, hypertension, obesity, um, multiple pregnancies. She's postmenopausal, probably has some COPD, hence the allupent inhaler. No history of MI, heart failure, uh, coronary uh, strokes or other coronary events. No history of cancer. Um, she's failed other therapies with her RA, including methotrexate, hydroxychloroquine, leflunamide, and two other TNF inhibitors, etanercept and adalimumab. She has established RA with deformities. She has five tender and four swollen joints and evidence of nodules, and she has bilateral pedal edema of the ankles. The question is, how are you going to manage the patient um, and the VTE and the RA medicines? What are your choices? Well, first you have to discern what the cause of the VTE is, the venous thromboembolic event, and what are you going to do about it? Certainly we know that um, RA patients get these, uh, patients on JAK inhibitors get this. So the risk of VTE is higher as you get older. It's higher in people with cancer, rheumatoid arthritis, any inflammatory condition. It's also higher and often based on obesity and hormonal therapy and risk factors like smoking, etc., and um, patients who have pre-existing lung disease. It's actually highest in people who have a history of a prior pulmonary embolism or prior deep vein thrombosis. So the population risk of getting a VTE is about zero to four events per 1,000 patient years. The RA risk is about three to six per 1,000 patient years. JAK inhibitors clearly increase the risk. It's anywhere from five to eight, could be higher in some studies, but it is higher above that scene with just RA alone. By the way, it's not necessarily higher with other therapies you commonly use. IL-6 inhibitors, abatacib, TNF inhibitors. So, but it is linked to activity. So activity being bad enough to put you on some other new drug, often, you know, you might see numbers ascribed to the new drug when in fact, the risk was really related to inflammation. There's a lot of research showing that with rising inflammatory activity, so goes the risk, uh, the rising risk of a pulmonary embolism like this patient happened. So what would I do? What would you do? Would you stop the JAK inhibitor? Well, first you got to stop the risk factors. What risk factors does she have? What if I said she was morbidly obese? That would be a risk factor, although it's a slow changing risk factor. You could certainly do better at controlling disease activity and maybe do better at controlling her COPD. Uh, and if she's on hormonal therapy for menopause, then maybe stop that. She's had no prior VTE. If she did, I would outright stop the JAK inhibitor. But you're probably going to stop the JAK inhibitor in this patient because why? She's not doing well on a JAK inhibitor, right? She has active disease. 
That alone is a reason enough to switch uh, and change your therapy. Having the VTE makes it certain she's not going to be on a jack inhibitor. So you wouldn't change her to a TNF inhibitor. She's failed at least two in the past. I would go with an IL-6 inhibitor. Keep her on the methotrexate. Go with the IL-6 inhibitor or abatacept or rituximab as my first choices. I, I think it's important that you have some baseline background therapy. You know, maybe putting her back on hydroxychloroquine. They have less cardiovascular events. They have less thromboembolic events. So maybe being back on that, and it might be additive to whatever therapies. So keep her on the methotrexate. Add in hydroxychloroquine. And maybe use one of the other biologics, not a JAK, not a TNF inhibitor. And that's how I would manage this case of VTE. Hard Decisions in RA is our campaign brought to you this month by Bristol-Myers Squibb. Tune in for more QD clinics. Take care. Hi, I'm Jack Cushion. This is an RAQD clinic. These are brought to you by BMS. Today's case, hard decisions in an old person who needs therapy. An 80-year-old woman who has rheumatoid arthritis for 34 years comes to you. She's doing poorly. Last year, she was diagnosed with CLL and ITP and small cell lung cancer, and she's been treated with chemotherapy and said to be in remission, although she's currently under care by the oncologist and by you, the rheumatologist. In fact, she's missed a few visits with the rheumatologist and now sees you because it was assumed that they would take care of her RA with all of her cancer care. Um, Her current medicines is methotrexate 25 milligrams a week as a sub-Q injection. She's on a non-steroidal, takes some PRN Tylenol, and that's it. In the past, she's been treated with etanercept, leflunamide, hydroxychloroquine, sulfasalazine, gold, and TNF inhibitors. She, got, she was taking adalimumab at the time that she was diagnosed with ITP, CLL, and the cancer, and hence they bailed out on further biologic therapy. She's only received the, the TNF inhibitor. So currently, she's got pain at 7 out of 10. She hurts kind of all over, small and large joints, 60 minutes of morning stiffness, 12 tender joints, 5 swollen joints. Her CDI score is 25, very high. She has Medicare. And the question is, what are you going to use to treat her RA? Here are your choices. One, let's go with A. A, your choice is let the oncologist treat her RA. B, you treat her RA and change her therapy by adding a DMART. C, let's go with abatacept. D, I like Ectemra or tocilizumab. And E, another person's thinking rituximab. Question is, what would you choose and why? So this is not an easy case. It's kind of complex. It's age, it's multiple drug failures, it's concomitant medical conditions and a cancer care thing. Uh, First issue, number one, elderly. The elderly are big time untreated by you, me, and everyone else that treats RA. I don't know why. I think it's because they're older and there's some financial restrictions. But really, I think people are afraid to give advanced therapies, aggressive therapies, to people who are older. Guess what? Our best drugs work in the elderly as well as they work in young people. Um, and, and, and the thing is that we don't use them because we're afraid to use these more aggressive therapies. 
Second, cancer. I said it before, I'm going to say it again. Let someone else take care of the cancer. You take responsibility for what you do well. You know the other person, the oncologist or the obstetrician or the family doctor, or I don't really care. They can't manage RA. They don't want to manage RA. Their life is too busy and complex and they want you to manage it. You manage the RA to the best of your ability. Let cancer be taken care of by the oncologist. Three, the elderly have a problem with polypharmacy. Well, she's not really taking much. She's getting chemotherapy Q3 weeks, and she's on very little for her RA, so that's not really a problem. But yeah, the elderly, polypharmacy is a big problem, which adds to their morbidity, if not drug toxicity risk, etc. But so it's something you keep in mind with the elderly. Money's a big issue, the fourth issue here, and her main source of payment here is Medicare. So if she were destitute with no insurance and no income, I could get her any drug here in the United States for free through compassionate use. But if she has Medicare, you really can't do that. It's hard to do that. But someone who has no insurance and, again, is in the poverty level, you can get any drug you want. You just have to apply and, and find out from the company what the process is, and you can get whatever you want. But the fact is, this patient has Medicare. So there are certain infusible medicines that may be preferred in this patient. And, and that does include abatacept, tocilizumab, and rituximab. These are the same choices that we had in our last case. They all apply here, and they're all well-tolerated, and we can all be used concomitantly with her chemotherapy. So you just send the note to the oncologist, this is what I'm going to do. If they know what they're doing, they'll have no problem with it. If they come back and tell you, oh my God, you can't use IV abatacept while I'm using a checkpoint inhibitor. Well, that actually is true, right? But... Other than that, you can pretty much use any therapy while they're using either checkpoint inhibitors or, you know, cisplatinum-related drugs or, or, you know, there's a, a billion and one different drugs that people might use, most of them cytotoxic. They can go very well with your biologics. Again, be aggressive in people who need aggressive therapy. RAQD clinics are brought to you by the sponsor of this month's campaign. That would be BMS. The campaign's called Hard Decisions in RA. Tune in for more QD clinics. Hello, everyone. This is Bella Mehta talking from New York. Um, I am here to talk to you about an interesting rheumatoid arthritis case, um, and I'll get right into it. So this uh, was a 56-year-old woman with long-standing history of seropositive erosive RA with pretty severe damage. Um, she was likely untreated or, un, you know, suboptimally treated for many years, um, initially because she was not diagnosed appropriately. And even after she was diagnosed, she had other complications. So we'll get into those complications pretty soon. Uh, but she came uh, with severe deformities, severe joint damage, um, and in the past did not respond to multiple oral medications. Um, you know, she was never consistent, um, at least uh, early on in her um, history uh, or early on when she was diagnosed with medications because she was always worried about um, medication side effects and whatnot. At some point, uh, about 
two or three years ago, she started having uh, lower extremity ulcers. These were angry, um, uh, huge ulcers, painful uh, in bilateral uh, lower extremities um, around the shin all the way to the ankle. Um, these were open wounds. Um, and we, uh, you know, we always kept having infections on top of these open wounds, uh, which needed antibiotics. This, These are patients which are typically co-managed with uh, wound care uh, because they need um, dressings all the time, uh, changing of, um, uh, you know, topical uh, wound care uh, solutions, uh, antibiotics topically or orally otherwise. So because of this, um, there was a lot of confusion about um, what would be the optimum uh, medication regimen for this patient. Uh, too much immunosuppression um, sometimes would cause infections and then too much of um, uh, antibiotics and stopping immunosuppressions made the RA worse. We also had a biopsy of those wounds uh, which showed clear rheumatoid vasculitis. So we knew this was rheumatoid vasculitis, which was getting uh, infected on and off. Now, um, over time, with very careful titration of steroids, immunosuppressants, those wounds finally healed about six months ago. Uh, and patient uh, could get um, stable uh, on immunosuppressors. So the patient was then uh, on Enral weekly uh, and subcutaneous methotrexate. So, you know, this is a patient that had a rough course, was diagnosed after many years of having the disease, had a lot of joint damage, had complications of rheumatoid vasculitis in the lower extremities, and now um, finally stable um, on two medications, uh, the Enrel and the methotrexate. The patient comes in to us with pain uh, while swallowing, pain while eating. Uh, when we examine the patient, we see a huge a two, uh, 0.5 by 0.5 centimeter ulcer on the hard palate. Very angry looking ulcer. Um, and, you know, this is the time um, where we start questioning, like, is this, uh, where is this ulcer coming from? On the same day, when we saw the ulcer, the patient did complain of some joint aches and pains uh, with two swollen and three tender joints. So not a lot of disease activity, but still some some active uh, uh, joints. Um, so I think the problem at hand, and that's something that I would want to discuss, is the ulcers in the mouth. So uh, a huge ulcer. Um, also, this patient had a history of long-standing history of smoking. Uh, so a, a past history of smoking, past history of all these infections. Um, it 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 does give you give us some differential diagnosis. So our differential diagnosis was infections. Um, this could also be fungal infections in immunosuppressed patients. Um, the patient could have um, malignancies, which is also one of the differential uh, history of smoking with uh, with being on um, different medications um, does put you at risk for malignancies. Um, 
and we were thinking of sending the patient to ENT to get a biopsy because at this point it was like this huge painful ulcer. Um, however, we wanted to make sure that we go back and and figure out what else can we test for or treat for um, while the patient waits for an ENT appointment. Um, so on careful history, we figured that about three or four months ago, patients started having intolerance to oral methotrexate, and we switched the patient to subcutaneous methotrexate, um, which the patient, you know, figured out how to do it themselves and was was pretty compliant on the current set of regimen. But on careful history, what we figured out was that the patient was not taking the folic acid every day instead of just taking it once a week with methotrexate when the patient was switched from oral to injectable methotrexate. And thus, um, I think the patient was not getting enough folic acid too. Um, and methotrexate has a known side effect of oral ulcers. Uh, usually those ulcers can present like quickly. There's a small, shallow ones, but this one was pretty um, big and deep. Um, but, so while, the, while we were waiting on the ENT appointment, we decided we need to do something. Since we found this in the history, we stopped uh, the methotrexate completely. Uh, uh, you know, got the patient back on folic acid as well as folinic acid, uh, just to see uh, what happens. And within a week of being on that regimen, uh, patient significantly improved. Um, the pain was much better. Obviously, we gave symptomatic. Um, uh, things to the patient like lidocaine, uh, goggles and whatnot, because these ulcers can be pretty painful. Um, all in all, uh, I think the patient overall did well. Um, but, you know, we were worried about vasculitic ulcers and malignancies and a simple history um, and, and just going through things in a much more comprehensive way helped us a lot. So with that, I think there's three three main teaching points here, I would say. Um, one, careful history uh, and physical exam goes a long way in all our patients, especially rheumatoid arthritis patients. Um, and it, the, mainly, sometimes it's not just the disease, but also the medications that uh, we give our patients. Um, and not only we, even other physicians co-managing these patients give to the uh, patients, um, which can cause uh, oddball um, presentations. So we need to be mindful, do a med reconciliation, um, and, and see if any of the medications can tell us or, or can lead us to some of the presentations. And lastly, um, something that I learned like you know methotrexate can cause pretty painful ulcers um, and folic acid um, even though is just a vitamin as a lot of physicians or even patients say um, it it is so so important and crucial when taking uh, when when taking methotrexate and I would recommend all patients to be um, counseled about this and every visit make sure that the patient is taking both methotrexate and folic acid so with that uh, thank you so much for watching and hope this helps you 
um, manage your patients better. And, um, uh, you know, you can follow me more at um, Bella underscore Mehta um, on Twitter. Thank you. Hi, welcome to another episode of QD Clinics by Room Now. I'm David Liu from Melbourne, Australia. And today I want to tell you a little bit about a patient I saw in clinic yesterday with checkpoint inhibitor-induced inflammatory arthritis and what they might tell us about rheumatoid arthritis, especially given some of the therapeutic trials that have come through in recent times. So yesterday I saw a 78-year-old lady who has melanoma, has stage 3 melanoma, and has been receiving nivolumab as an adjuvant therapy. Mm -hmm. So nivolumab is a PD-1 inhibitor. It's a checkpoint. A PD-1 is a checkpoint, as I think many people have come to know over the course of time. Uh, this is a checkpoint that when we block it, we can potentially unleash inflammation against a tumour, especially a tumour like melanoma, and get great um, outcomes in cancer. Of course, this was the basis of a Nobel Prize in medicine and has really revolutionized a lot of different cancers, especially melanoma, but many other tumor streams as well. Anyway, this lady on her second cycle of adjuvant nivolumab, so she gets them every four weeks, had within um, well, the next day after the um, nivolumab developed what in, in many other settings would look a lot like rheumatoid arthritis. So she had a small joint polyarticular inflammatory arthritis, profound, woke up with profound early morning stiffness, swelling right across the MCPs, PIPs as well, wrists, um, all the um, attributes that one might associate with rheumatoid arthritis. Now, is this rheumatoid arthritis or not? It's a very good question. First of all, to say this has clearly been induced by a drug and Really, if you're looking at that temporal correlation, it's very clearly associated. Not all checkpoint inhibitor-induced arthritis, uh, arthritis uh, is so closely temporally correlated, and not of all, all of it looks so closely like rheumatoid arthritis. And we do know that um, immune checkpoint inhibitor inflammatory arthritis, an IRAE, is a distinct entity in of itself. They're different characteristics. I mean, you can't really lump it in, in, a same, in the same category with RA for clinical purposes. But what we can see is that these type of uh, phenomena really have many, many similar characteristics to rheumatoid arthritis. And then there are other ones that resemble polymalgeromatica, that resemble myositis, that re resemble Sjogren's in terms of sicker symptoms. And maybe potentially we can learn a whole lot from these immune-related adverse events from nivolumab and other PD-1 inhibitors and other PDL one inhibitors, other checkpoint inhibitors, all of the, the adverse events that these are creating, we could learn a lot about the classical autoimmune diseases that they resemble. We also see, of course, that uh, when we treat patients with pre-existing autoimmune disease, so with patients who already have rheumatoid arthritis, or already have other inflammatory, uh, rheumatic inflammatory conditions, that we see them flare often. And maybe that, that can teach us a little bit about flares as well. 
So this idea that maybe we can learn from the immune-related adverse event, it's a really interesting idea that we can learn things that might give us insights about classical autoimmune disease, especially when there's still plenty that we'd like to know about many of those diseases um, and still plenty we'd like to know about rheumatoid arthritis flares. So within the cancer world, we know that there are um, uh, some widespread technologies that we'd like to adopt more widely in, in rheumatology. We know that we can learn a lot from this induced inflammatory arthritis, induced uh, what is essentially um, could be argued to be induced rheumatoid arthritis, but really is something very similar, but something we can learn a lot about rheumatoid arthritis from. When you've got essentially a human model of an induced inflammatory arthritis like this, it really raises a question, could we target something like PD-1 therapeutically? And what we've seen recently is a, a phase 2A trial published in the New England Journal of Medicine of a PD-1 agonist in the form of perisolumab. And really, I think what we got excited by from that is particularly the patients who were um, inadequate responders to a, another biologic DMARD, we saw that these patients actually did really well on perisolumab versus placebo, which is not the opposite of what you usually see. It's not what you expect to see. Of course, the question comes about if we are going one way to get rid of cancer, could going the other way be of concern? So is safety an issue? Well, we didn't see any episodes in the trial, but these short randomized controlled trials are clearly with smallish numbers, really are clearly not designed to pick up on those safety signals. What we, um, can take some consolation from perhaps is the fact that we already have uh, agonists at checkpoints which don't seem to lead to an increased rate of cancer. There are some important differences between those checkpoints but that's true nevertheless. In the form of the CTLA-4 agonist of Batacept, we haven't seen increased rates of cancer when everything's washed out with a Batacept in real-world data. And I think we get a lot of reassurance from that. Of course, that doesn't necessarily directly translate to a PD-1 agonist. It certainly does give us encouragement. But really, I think one thing that should give us reassurance is this idea that maybe if we can hit a homeostasis, that we can hit the right equilibrium between uh, unleashing inflammation and retracting it back by inhibiting checkpoints, then maybe we can get really good therapeutic outcomes for our patients without putting them at undue safety. I think there's a lot more to see in this space. It's a really exciting space to have potentially seen an example in the clinic and knowing that this may well lead through through astute clinical observation and then targeting the appropriate, um, appropriate therapeutic targets, we might well get new therapeutics for rheumatoid arthritis for this. For plenty more in the rheumatoid arthritis campaign this, this month at uh, RoomNow, head on down to the website, head on down to our, our social media channels. See you there.